0: Just before we get started, I'd like to thank you for listening. This episode is the finale of Season 1 of the Masters of Motion podcast. Before I commence Season 2, I'd love to get your feedback. It'd be great if you could send me an email with what you like, what you don't like, and who you'd like me to interview in the next season. You can contact me at matthew at mastersofmotion.com.au. Thanks once again. Let's get into it. Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today I'll be chatting with Gareth O'Brien, the creative director from Buck, Sydney. Gareth discovered his passion for design at Messi University in Wellington, New Zealand, and after graduating he worked at Craft House Films where he developed his skills as an animator. After a brief but successful stint in the UK, Gareth joined the New York office of Buck which at that time only had four employees. It quickly grew and went on to become one of the most influential and successful motion design studios in the world. While at Buck New York, Gareth sharpened his skills in motion design, traditional animation, and stop motion animation. In 2015, Gareth left the New York office to set up Buck Sydney, where he is presently the creative director. Welcome, Gareth, and thanks very much for coming in today and taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, no worries. Looking forward to chatting. So first of all, we're going to start off with talking about how you'd progress as a junior in the industry. Also, what I'd like to find out is what it takes to progress in your career if you're a mid-level animator or designer.
1: Yeah, top of the list is good communication skills, and by that I mean both being able to express your thoughts and your ideas and, and also being able to listen to others. Obviously, it helps to be really good and, and fast at, at what you do, you know, whatever that is, whether it's design or animation or, or modeling. And on top of that, it's a good attitude and someone who can leave their ego at the door and is happy and open to having their work critiqued.
0: And do you guys get a lot of applications, people
1: just emailing you when you don't have a job advertised? You have no idea. It really surprised no, me when really. I took on this new position and just how many applications we get. Um, You know, it fluctuates a bit, but probably on average, we probably get maybe 10 a day. Shit! It's incredibly time-consuming going through those emails, and it kind of depends on how busy we are as to how much time I have for that. So it can be a bit of luck of the draw, depending on how how busy we are, and also if we're looking for people or not.
0: That's crazy. At the peak of popcorn, I probably only had about 10 people every two months apply for a job. Yeah. always felt bad about not responding to them if I was too busy. Okay then, let's move on to software. What software skills do you require to work at Buck?
1: Uh, so we use the full Adobe Suite, so Illustrator, Photoshop and After Effects. Our 3D pipeline uses Maya, VRA, and Nuke. So all of the large 3D jobs that we do are, are done in Maya. And then we also use Cinema every now and then. And um, we've recently bought a few TV paint licenses and the guys are getting into some cell animation using that.
0: And how are you finding TV paint?
1: Yeah, the guys love it. It's a lot faster than some of the other cell programs like Animate and also Photoshop. It seems to be very good in the early stages, I think, when you're really setting the the timing of the piece. It feels closest, I think, to the real thing, right? So drawing on paper.
0: Have you guys got many Cintiqs in the office and how many of your staff
1: like to use them? I think in our office we have 11 people and we probably have eight Cintiq so most of the guys have a Cintiq all of the designers like to use them and all of the cell animators use them as well all righty let's
0: move on a little since you got about 10 people applying every day I suppose this is a pretty important question yeah yeah true what does it take to get in the door and work at Buck then thrive
1: you can get in the door in, in many different ways I think usually it starts with a with a good portfolio or good showreel it might even just start with one solid piece of work building this the Sydney studio here I've been looking for you know swissami knives people who are good at not just one thing but a few things and that means that I can keep that person busy um, and won't have them sitting there as much as I would a specialist once your foot's in the door it's really just a matter of having a good attitude and being easy to work with and fun to work with and obviously doing you know amazing work. So you've got your foot in the door and you've got a
0: really good attitude. Yep. Do you think that people, when appropriate, should try and work really long hours and work really hard? Or do you think that they should try and really focus on the hours that are
1: available and do the best they can within them? I'd much rather they worked solid in the hours that's expected. I've kind of been there, done that, and you, you do get burnt out if you work long hours and You know, I'd rather have a bigger team on it and kind of know that there was too much work to do than have people burning the midnight oil. But in saying that, you know, we have done that from time to time and and it does unfortunately happen. You don't assess the amount of work properly or you get a curveball from the client or something and then sometimes we do end up staying late you're always limited by
0: the amount of people that the budget can afford. Yep. And sometimes near the end, it's not really possible to add people in even if you have the budget.
1: It's not always a matter of just putting more people on it. Sometimes that doesn't solve the problem. And we've definitely had that problem in some key areas. But you know, we're, we're very, very fortunate here in that we have the luxury of having a very incredible couple of studios on the other side of the world who are happy to help us put out any fires if that does happen. And so... We do sometimes lean on the the other officers to help out.
0: I found that when I was working with my marketing director in one of my previous jobs in the UK that the overnight thing worked pretty well when you were sending off work, but it could be frustrating when you really wanted to contact them and ask them a question. Mm -hmm. How do you find working with people
1: remotely? It works well and it doesn't. I'm working with some offsite people at the moment and it's so time consuming, (laughs) you know, just like, briefing them their email or or over Slack instead of having a conversation and you end up having the same conversation with different artists. You know, you have the same conversation over and over instead of just having one big meeting. Um, So it can be time consuming, but it can also be very beneficial. You know, we've worked for clients in the States and we can send something at the end of our day and then they have the whole day to regroup, look at it as a team and get back to us before 9am. So there's no time lost, which is really great.
0: I'd just like to go back a little bit and talk about your portfolio selection again. Okay. What do you think are the most important things to put online and what wouldn't you put up?
1: I would only put your best work online. You know, I I do think it's true that you'll be judged by your worst piece of work, you know. So if you're not proud of anything or if you know it's it's below par, then just don't put it up there. And You just put the, the stuff, not only that you think is good, but the stuff that you want to be doing more of. And we'll do this at Buck as well. You know, we only put on that we want to be doing more work of and that, that we're proud of.
0: So let's talk about mid-level designers and animators. What would you like to see in their showreels?
1: A good showreel would be short. I'm thinking, you know, 30 seconds short. It would consist of amazing work, obviously, and, and show an eye towards both design and animation. Uh, it would have a personal piece in the mix, and this might simply be a nice little intro, uh, but something that they've done more or less on their own. The edited really well, and every shot would show something new, and it would leave me wanting more. It needs to make me want to go and see their portfolio, and then, then ideally, I would go to their portfolio and see something else which is cool, which wasn't on their reel. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that 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 for me would be the ultimate.
0: I think that's a very well-described essentials of what you need for the (laughs) showreel. If you've achieved all that, do you think that it's wise to hold back a piece of work so when you go in for a meeting you've got something to show and talk about?
1: So it depends on who you are and what kind of portfolio you've got. But if you have that luxury, then that's a great tactic, I think. Do you look at the reels or do you go straight to the projects? I I look at the showreels. It's a really good way to get a whole portfolio into one short piece. And I'll often go and look at the... The portfolio as well, but the showreels very useful for me.
0: If you could give just one tip on how to market yourself, an important what to do or what not to do, what would it be? Making it a nice short email. To be honest, the long emails just are not read. You're on the money there. That's been a pretty common (laughs) tip. All right. Now it'd be great if you could give us a little bit of insight on how you discovered motion graphics. Let's keep it short and punchy.
1: Oh short and punchy, mate. I have a I have a longer answer (laughs) for this. Go along. It's okay. Are you sure? All right. I started off at uni really not sure where I wanted to end up. And I was flirting with the idea of doing industrial design. And then I'd flip flop to fashion design and then graphic design. And then I took a class in animation. And I also took a class in documentary making. And I fell at that point head over heels for what they called computer graphics at the time. I learned Flash first up and Final Cut Pro. And then Lightwave, which is what all of the students were completing their major projects in. And then I discovered a wee company called MK12. And at that point, I I really clicked and fell in love with motion design.
0: MK12 were pretty cool. It's amazing they had so much impact considering there wasn't that much social media back then.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this was back in the day when there was maybe one amazing piece coming out every couple of months. It was such a cool time. I have really fond memories of it. They'd drop a piece, you know, maybe a couple of years even, and it was just, oh, I just used to watch them so many times, you know, frame by frame, download these tiny quick times and, and kind of froth over them. Um, but yeah, they, they, were, they were huge for me, like very influential. I just loved how it was, you know, a nice mix of graphic design and, and animation, these days you'd probably call them online influencers
0: but there was a lot of people back in those days who who embraced their style and sort
1: of replicated their work. Yeah totally me included you know I think my final year at uni was picking apart what they did and kind of <laughs> doing my own version of that for sure.
0: Cool all right it would be really great if you could now briefly describe your career path.
1: I studied at Massey University in Wellington and Straight out of uni I started working at a place called Craft House Films, uh, which was also in Wellington in New Zealand. I started as a freelancer but really just became a permalancer where I'd go into the office whether I had work or not and I'd just work on side projects if I didn't have a paid gig. And I did that for about three years and then I did a, a short stint at Nexus in London, just freelancing there before moving to New York and working at Buck in 2007, which is when they opened the office uh, in New York. And then 2015, I moved to Sydney to open the studio.
0: So your career's really entailed three stints in like some well-known studios and some diverse freelancing.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, when I was at Craft House in, in Wellington, I worked at a bunch of other places in town, freelancing, maybe five other places. The majority of my time was there, so... Also Nexus was only a three-month stint, so really it feels more like I've worked at two places, just Craft House and then at Buck.
0: So how would you compare going to London with going to New York? Which one do you think was more intimidating?
1: London and New York are on the same level. They were both as exciting and, and intimidating as each other. So throughout your career, which projects did you find the most
0: satisfying and enjoyable?
1: There are a handful that stand out in my mind and... They probably stand out because I grew a lot. There were parts of my career where I learned a lot and also where I worked with some special people. So for me, the first would probably be a spot that I did for Smart Car with Ika and that for me is when designing really clicked for me. The next would be a job I did for Sundance, which was the first time I did stop motion and the first time I met an incredible guy called Chad Colby. Then it would probably be, have to be F5, which was the first time I used puppets in a professional piece of work, which was really fun. And then more recently, I, I guess, Woolmark, uh, which is a job we did in Sydney. And it was a big 3D job. It was our first 3D job here. And it was just a time when a, a pretty small team learned a ton and, and I think produced a, a great piece of work that stands up against other uh, buck projects.
0: So where do you think the best creative freedom lies, working with big clients or working with small clients?
1: Every client's different, to be honest, you know, big or small. Sometimes the small ones can be the most annoying. (laughs) Sometimes the big ones can be the most annoying. You know, I think, I don't think there's a formula. I don't think that it's, yeah, you know, some, some large clients, Nike were fantastic. They just kind of let us do what we do and, and we're into that. Cool. I want to move on to working
0: with puppets. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> that started with a guy called Pete McDonald. When I was at Craft House, they had a music festival there called Handle the Jandal that they'd put on every year. And for a few years in a row, we did the title sequence for that. And one year with a mixed media project where we literally threw everything in plus the kitchen sink at it. And one of those things was a puppet called Blango that Pete had made. And this puppet kind of hung around the office for the years thereafter and had kind of a pair over your shoulder and and chat to you throughout the day and abuse you and it was really fun. Um, and, and Pete went on to make a few more puppets and I ended up making a puppet and giving it to Pete for, at his wedding and so we kind of would make these puppets and use them in, in place of having actors I think in personal projects. So I'd, I'd kind of been doing that for a few years on the side and When we got approached do the F5 sequence, the theme for that was um, a kids' variety show, and so it made sense for one of those sections to have puppets in it. And so we divided up the speaker names, and I think we had about four or five each to introduce, and I wrote a little rap, (laughs) and we designed and painted the set. And then we worked with Tim and James, who were puppeteers, like professional puppeteers that worked on Sesame Street, um, they'd worked on lots of stuff and were you know professionals and so we handed over our designs and they um, they built the puppets but they they really led us in on the process and showed us their studio and and taught us a huge amount of puppeteering it was, it was such an amazing experience and then the shoot day was was incredible it was you know instead of directing Tim and James um, you were directing the the puppets so you would talk to Noodles or Basil and they'd speak back at you and swear at you and it was just you know a really fun day and then at the festival or at the conference rather we had a bit of a skit where we had Basil one of the puppets on the stage behind a podium and he would you know talk to Noodles who was on the screen and they had a bit of a kind of mouse thing where they'd chase each other from the screen onto the stage it was a really cool project and I learned a ton and had a huge amount of fun along the way.
0: And did you find it more tactile working with your hands and do you enjoy working with your hands instead of doing the computer work?
1: That project was very hands-on and there wasn't a huge amount of computer work. I mean, we've done a ton of stop motion and and that is the attraction to it is that you do get to move away from the screen and you get to, you know, use your hands and do painting and it it almost feels like you're at kindergarten sometimes and you have to pinch yourselves. It is really neat. And... The stop motion that we do often involves quite a bit of computer work because we like to go in knowing that it's going to work and so we'll fully animate the piece on the computer first and and then just be executing those frames when we're shooting it. But the, the puppets are probably closer to a live-action shoot. Well, it was a live-action shoot, so it was more like a you know live-action piece rather than an animation uh, piece.
0: So over the years, what was the hardest thing that you had to learn to improve your career? For me, it was
1: design you know animation seemed to come naturally to me Um, and with design i could always see that my work wasn't quite as good as those um, around me and it just took years and years of practice before my work was good enough
0: so what were the sort of things that you did to try and
1: improve on those design skills I would just kind of look at my design. I think next to Iker's or Thomas's or the, you know the other people in the office who were working on the same project, often I'd get a chance to pitch on a job with them, and and their work would just look better. And so it was a matter of just kind of looking at what they were doing, talking to them, and getting them to give me some pointers. Being surrounded by those guys definitely is a fast track to getting better and better. Um, and just you know gradually and and slowly, I found you know my voice I guess and some confidence. So how did you get the job at Buck? Over that first three years of my career I kind of built up a bit of a portfolio and made a showreel and I just emailed a a few studios that I really wanted to work at. One of those was Buck and they happened to be opening the New York office at the time so we're looking for people and so I was really fortunate that they got back to me and ended up getting the job. Did you go over to the States for an interview,
0: or did you just talk to them over the phone? No, I just had a few phone interviews from New Zealand. It'd be great, Gareth, if you could tell us the story of leaving New Zealand and going to the States to work at Bach. It'd also be great to hear about how you felt when you got there.
1: Yeah, well, I actually went with my wife, and we travelled around South America for a few months, and then we went to London for a few months before moving to New York, and so... You know, we had a bit of an adventure before we even got to New York. The feeling was insane. I was so excited to get there and, you know, get into things with them. And what was it like living in New York? Oh, New York's amazing. It's really exciting. It's obviously quite different to New Zealand. (laughs) Um, But what was really cool when I got to New York is because it was a young studio, uh, there was a, a bunch of people that were new to the city and so... We all got to kind of explore it together, and none of us knew many people, so we all went out together and worked hard, played hard kind of thing. It was a really cool part of my life.
0: It sounds like a really good time. Now I'd like to move on to talking about awards. What effect did winning awards have in your career?
1: The biggest thing that it gave me was confidence. The first year out of university, I entered the Best Awards, which is the New Zealand Design Awards. And I entered a piece that I'd done with Charlie Ward and it was my first year out of design school and we, we won a gold for it and it just gave me this massive boost of confidence and it made me realise that I could potentially do this as a career. And the second thing that it did was it helped me to get a visa <laughs> for the States, which was very handy. The Young Guns Award, honestly, I think by then it didn't really affect my career because I had a full-time job that I was happy in. But, you know, it was something that I'm extremely proud of. And do
0: you think that young people in studios should enter awards?
1: That's a good question. I was never that into awards, to be honest, and, and didn't really think it was worth our while. It felt a bit more of, a, of an advertising thing, and it seemed a bit fake. It almost felt like you were just buying an award. But I actually think my mindset's changed a little bit, and I actually think it's really important for us to be putting ourselves you know, up against other companies, local companies and, I don't know, just having a, a bit of competition and being recognised for the work that we're doing. So now I'd like
0: to move on to talking about your time at Buck in New York. How did the studio change from when you started until when you left to go and start the Sydney studio?
1: Uh, when I started, I guess we went from four people to about 30. That was over the course of uh, seven or eight years. The work changed a bit. You know, we went from end tags and, <laughs> and that sort of thing to big CG spots. In that time, we we went through three different offices. We started off in a small one-bedroom apartment. In um, the current studio is over two floors. It has a nice shooting area. It has a dedicated craft area. So, you know, I, I think the company matured a lot over that time and went from being a small company really trying to fight our way to get a seat at the table to one who was, you know, one of the more popular companies who was getting a seat at the table quite often.
0: Looking at Buck's early work, I would have thought you would have got a seat at the table pretty quickly. Is that the case?
1: When Buck started, there was already well-established companies like Brand New School and Psyop and and the likes. And, And they were the ones who were leading the charge at that point we were a bit left of centre <laughs> and not being asked for a lot of these bigger jobs.
0: What do you think were the things that made Bucks so successful in those early years and eventually got them a seat with those bigger clients and working on bigger projects?
1: Uh, well, we've always placed a huge amount of importance on creative. And we've, we've had a mentality that if we make good work, the good work will find us. And, and so a lot of our success, I think, comes down to the passion projects that we've done. You know, we've we've taken on projects that haven't made any money and we've spent money on them, but have been extremely rewarding from a creative standpoint. And I feel like that's what's got us more of that sort of work and it's kind of snowballed from there. But doing the passion projects we were able to to do something we hadn't done before. So you know maybe we hadn't done stop motion but we wanted to. We could do that on our own dime. If we hadn't done cell animation, we could take on a project and, and every time we did that, it would lead to paid work in that same style.
0: I'd like to move now on to process. What do you think are the important processes that you guys use at Buck to make your work so successful?
1: Our processes, it changes, I guess, a little bit depending on the job, but we do kind of make milestones that we hit. And so we'll start off with storyboarding and pulling mood reference. Once those storyboards are approved, we'll move into to designing and making style frames. And then from there, we'll move into an animatic and then into animation. And so we, we just have these milestones that we get through before we move further forwards. And obviously, if it's a 2D job, it's got a few less milestones than if it's a 3D job where there's a lot more involved. What level of importance do you put on the
0: written word in developing your projects? And do you do much written briefs and treatments?
1: again it depends you know we we do some projects where the script comes to us and we're we're kind of putting visuals to that script we do other projects where we write the script um and we just take a brief and so it it does depend i think on the project but personally i i I probably do more in our in our pictures or in our in our documents we probably put more visual stuff than than words we definitely write the treatment but the emphasis is more on the, the design and the storytelling and the animation.
0: So in the early days, did you have much emphasis on new business development and who was involved in trying to get new work?
1: In the States, the, the models are a little different and we had uh, reps who would be out on the pavement kind of selling us and, and getting, trying to get work in the door.
0: And the representative process, do you find that as a
1: good one? Uh, I find it questionable, to be honest <laughs> I really like not having that system here You know, our EP, is Erica, is doing that role as part of her job The reps in the States, the, the, the bad thing about that is that you, you have less, less to work with Because they take a cut of the budget
0: And is it common to have representation in the studios in the US?
1: It is, yeah I can't think of any in our kind of niche area that don't have a rep. So now I'd like to move on to talk about Buck Sydney. Yep.
0: What led you to set up a studio in Sydney? Uh, so I had a couple of girls um,
1: and decided that I wanted to move home to New Zealand.
0: So I heard that that prompted you to put in your resignation.
1: Yeah, I, I, I quit. <laughs> and then they they were like, well, no, you don't. <laughs> and the partners offered me the opportunity to open the office here and I, I took it. So that sounds pretty cool. What did it feel like to
0: have that offered to you? Was it a hard decision?
1: Um, so yeah, it was it was pretty exciting, and and I would have been a fool not to take them on. I think. So let's talk a little bit
0: about budgets. How do the US budgets compare to the Aussie budgets?
1: They don't. <laughs> they're um they're smaller here. There's no question about that. We have had a couple of decent budgets since we've been here, but on the whole, they're smaller. And so we just have to be clever and, and do more with less, um, which can be really satisfying, I think. Over my seven years of running
0: an animation studio, I saw budgets decrease in Australia a fair bit. And also I found that often they would come to you with unrealistic budgets. Yeah. I sort of made it part of my business to try and educate the clients and try and get them to
1: improve their budgets.
0: Yep. Do you do any of that?
1: We do, and and I think, you know, for me, one of the hardest things that I'm slowly learning is to say no. (laughs) It's a powerful word, and we're getting better at doing that. But we have different tactics, and it depends on how how badly we want the job, I guess, as to how we'll approach it. But one of those would be to try and get more money, for sure. The other would be to set expectations and go back with a different creative solution to their problem, which can be done in a shorter amount of time and therefore costs less money.
0: I found that saying no generally led to bigger opportunities coming in when you weren't doing that work that was going to pay you
1: less money than what you should have been paid. Yeah, that's right, and it's better for our whole industry if we don't accept these unreasonable requests, I think. We have a bit of a role to play in that, and and we have to be mature and stand up for ourselves.
0: So now I'd like to talk a little bit about pitching. Yep. Uh, What do you think the advantages and disadvantages
1: are? The advantages are that the client's really buying into your idea and your execution. And once the job awards, you can really hit the ground running in most cases, which is really great. The disadvantages, I think, are that you often don't have enough time to work on the, the project or on the idea. And so the idea might not be as good as it could be because you're kind of working in this really short amount of time and you're working with the resources you you have free rather than the resources that would be best suited for the job and obviously the other bigger disadvantage is that it costs money you know it costs us a lot of money to do these pitches. And how do you think pitching in America compares to pitching in Australia? Um, I think it's the same to be honest I think um, maybe over there you get a few more paid pitches than what you get here you know people come forward with a little bit of money it's very similar you're usually pitching against A couple of other very good companies. It's a bit frustrating because all of those companies could totally execute the work to an equal standard.
0: So now I'm going to move on to talking about project development, especially idea creation. Okay. Once you get the brief, what's your processes and how do you go about creating good ideas?
1: We start off with a chat, going through the brief together as a team. Uh, We'll talk about some initial ideas and then we'll go away and do some research or sketch out some ideas some people prefer to do this on their own others team up and then we'll usually have a a line in the sand we'll kind of regroup and talk about what we've discovered so there's just a lot of little meetings and the good ideas kind of continue to be developed
0: do you think about your ideas outside the work like when you're at home
1: of course (laughs) yeah I mean I, I try and switch off I'm not very good at switching off to be honest I'll think of ideas in the middle of the night sometimes and write it down I do try and switch off especially now that I have kids and a family it'd be great now to talk about your
0: experience as a director okay so as a creative director do you still work on the tools and do you do much designing
1: or animating anymore I love working on the tools, (laughs) and that's one thing I I do struggle with. I still designed this week. I I don't animate much anymore. I sooner help out with design, and I really enjoy doing that, and I think it's fun, and and I I guess I struggle because I I do really enjoy being on the tools, Um, but sometimes I can see that when I'm working on the tools some other things slip you know so I I could easily spend the whole day not on the tools and just walking around from shoulder to shoulder talking about work and looking at new jobs coming in and quite easily spend eight hours doing that so I kind of struggle because I do enjoy doing it um, and I think the other guys enjoy it when I do it as well so I think it's finding the right balance and I've definitely been working on them less and less as we've been in Sydney over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, well, I've always found that the best creative directors work both on the tools and understand them well and off the tools. Sounds like you've got a pretty good balance. Yeah. <laughs> be great if you could now tell us a little bit about how you manage design problems and how you overcome them.
1: I put a lot of trust in the process, so I take a step back and look at the problem that we're trying to solve, and often I'll go back to the brief or the mood board and, and just try to pinpoint why it's not working Um, i'll also involve other people in the in the problem and i'll grab lucas or whoever's right to help me solve the problem and we'll both sit down and look at it together
0: so now i'd like to talk a little bit about mentoring how do you train your
1: young creatives Uh, we start small i think and give them easier tasks that we know they can do and then slowly build them up to bigger challenges and slowly build them up to give them more responsibility and you know all the time just try to be encouraging and, and positive along the way.
0: Do you find it hard to be positive when you're under the
1: pump? Yes and no I think on the whole pretty good but you know there are times where it's difficult to rein in the stress <laughs> but I'm always able to look at it like this, these we're just making some commercials you know it's not we're not saving lives here <laughs> it's just a design or an animation. So it's, I don't get too flustered by things, to be honest.
0: I wish I could be like that. I treat my work like it is brain surgery, um, and often people think that I'm pretty intense. So next I'd like to talk about what do you think makes a good studio culture?
1: I really think it comes down to the people who are in the office, you know that those people really make up that office. The New York Buck office is different to LA and LA is different to us and it's really the personalities that make up the, the vibe of, of the office. And office culture or the culture of the company is is huge to us and we place a, a big importance on that. Last year we we got all three offices together, we went on a weekend to um, upstate New York and, and we all flew over there and, and had a weekend together and this year we're we're heading down to Node, the festival in, in Melbourne. We're taking the whole team. So, you know, I think it's really important to be able to step back every now and then and hang out with each other in a different environment and have some fun. Do
0: you think that the workspace is important and affects the culture and does it help the team perform
1: better? Yeah, I think it is important. What I try to communicate to everyone is that it's their space. You know, I don't see it as, as my office or Buck's office. It's really the Buck Sydney guys. It's It's their space and... And they have a say in, in how the office works and how the office is run. And so we've had chats about, you know, all these guys have worked at other places and and um, we've taken some of those ideas from other companies and, and started to, to put them into the way that we work in Sydney.
0: So next, let's talk about creating the work. Do you feel any pressure to come up with new techniques and styles?
1: Not Not really, to be honest. I think, you know, pushing ourselves probably just comes naturally, but... I think there was a time like when we first opened the Sydney studio that I was I was a little worried that we wouldn't be able to deliver work to the same standard as the other offices just because it's, it was so high and, and we were starting with a completely new team.
0: Cool. All right. So what's your approach when you want to try something new and you've never done it before?
1: I guess it's to do some tests and to experiment before we commit to it. I guess a good example, the first time we did stop motion, we went out, and bought a bunch of phone board and just started playing around and, and seeing, you know, how easy or how hard it was, how long it would take and start to, to kind of experiment. And you really have to choose the right time and the right project to do that because obviously doing something new can take a little bit longer. And also we might choose to do that on a passion project where there's a little bit less pressure uh, from a paid client to deliver something.
0: Do you have any kernels of wisdom of like coming up with new techniques?
1: I guess it's just a matter of of experimenting every now and then and trying new things, you know, whether that's a new program or a new medium or just a new Photoshop brush. It's, you know, getting slightly out of your comfort zone and trying something different.
0: Since when you began at Sydney, you've done a few big 3D projects. Have you learned a lot of new things on those projects?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was, you know, working with a whole lot of artists that we hadn't worked with, they were learning our pipeline we were learning about the steps in, in a 3D project. There was a, a huge learning curve um, when we started doing 3D here.
0: When you've been working in the industry a while, you get pretty good at doing the same thing really well. How do you avoid repeating your own styles and techniques?
1: Yeah, I think it's probably it's unavoidable. I think people come to you because they like something that they've seen on your portfolio. So you might not be able to always do something completely new but you can always there's always something you can change to move it into a new interesting direction for yourselves no matter what it is it could just be something really small that you change there's always something so now i'd like to
0: talk to you about a couple of big projects that you've worked on over the last few years first of all i'd like to start with woolmark could you tell us a little bit about that project
1: a job that we did direct with the the clients or without an agency involved and they came to us with a really cool character driven script and it was about um, a guy who was called the innovator and his sheep and he traveled through four different time periods and taught you about the benefits of merino wool. How did you approach the brief? So we, we went back with a few different um, takes on the brief. There was a couple of 2D executions and then one that was a 3D execution and on paper it really didn't make sense to do 3D because while they had a pretty decent budget it wouldn't sustain a 3D job but What they did have was time. They had six months uh, to do the spot. Um, And that's, you know, kind of almost unheard of in in advertising. And so we saw it as a really great opportunity to get a 3D job under our belt here in Sydney and to kind of discover some local freelance artists and uh, work with them. And so we pitched this 3D execution and they loved it and we loved it too. And so from there, it was just a challenging process of finding team members in a in a city that we were new to and building the right team and, and teaching them our pipeline. So how did the project go? Was there any
0: hiccups? And what was the response like?
1: The job went pretty well. It didn't have too many rocky moments. And I think, you know, we're all very proud of the result. I think it's a really fun piece and it's won some awards, which is always nice to have it recognised. And it was successful for us, I think, because we were able to hire some people off the back of it. And it also led to more 3D work and really set up a system for us in it and and got us familiar with some local artists that we've continued to work with since so
0: how many people worked on the woolmark project
1: at the time that we got woolmark we had three full-timers <laughs> and so it started pretty small and the project went over the course of 6 months and within that time we probably grew to around uh, maybe eight staff members and we had a lot of freelancers working on the job as well so we probably had about 20 people touch that project. Could you go into a bit of detail about the storyboarding process? We started off with storyboarding, you know, just in 2D, and we started off with character design as well pretty early on. We stay in 2D for quite a while until everything's signed off by the client. We block it out, the timing, in 2D, so we'll do a board or an animatic, and for that piece we we animated it in cell before we started doing it in 3D so that the the timing was all pretty well locked by the time we moved into 3D. What
0: was the key element that you think made the project work well?
1: What I love about that project is we had really geometric-based, reduced, minimal-designed characters, but then we juxtaposed that with very realistic-looking uh, textures and materials. All of the fabric, was, was which was very important to the client, was quite real and tactile looking and all of the the cotton and the the lycra looked kind of old and saggy and the merino wool looked really warm and, and fluffy.
0: Tell us about the process of the 2D and 3D development of the characters.
1: We did them all in 2D first so we started off sketching you know drawing them by hand in Photoshop and then we moved it into Illustrator and we had vector versions of the characters and we We had them fully designed and coloured in 2D before we even started modelling. Tell us a little bit about your rendering process. What renderer did you use? We rendered it all in-house. We have a little render farm. Yeah, we use Maya and V-Ray, and that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge. (laughs) Um, You're asking the wrong guy for technical information on the rendering process.
0: So let's get back into your expertise. What was the biggest
1: challenge on the project? Probably resourcing, (laughs) you know. We're brand new to Sydney, and so we were just restricted to Google searching and some recommends from people. And what was the response? response was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, everyone was really happy. And one of the cool things that came out of it is we still, to this day, get briefs from agencies and it will have a still from Walmart and the mood board, which is always, you know, kind of fun to see.
0: Excellent. Alrighty, let's move on to another project. Could you tell us a little bit about the Aperol project?
1: we were approached by the Royals to help them do a spot for Aperol, who are a big sponsor at the Australian Tennis Open down in Melbourne. They have these amazing 360 degree screens that wrap around the three main courts there. And the idea was to tell a story of an orange moving around the courts on these screens and going into a glass of Aperol spritz. And they gave us a theme of a European summer. And so we created a design language that spoke to this. It was, you know, flat, two D, poppy, and graphic, and it had it was a mix of characters and summary props, and we laid it all out like a mural. It was quite detailed, and then we had the orange move around these objects, kind of bouncing off them or going through them, almost like a like a pinball would move in a pinball machine. The key challenge there was the technical challenge of working at this crazy resolution and this this really long and skinny comp size, and also each of the three courts had completely different holes in them. So there was a lot of kind of early on technical challenges like working out a way to not do this thing three times but have something that was designed for the space. Do you get to go down and check it out at the open and what
0: did it look like on the big screens?
1: We got to go to the open which was amazing and for me what was really successful about the project was the colours. It was all branded in the Aperol Orange and there was lots of yellows and some blues and it really complemented the blue courts that they have there. That was the only piece that was actually, that felt like it was really designed for the space. You know, there was a lot of, there's a lot of sports kind of advertising there and a a lot of that was just 16 by 9 uh, pieces that were repeated or tiled around the courts.
0: So just tell us some of the details. What was the timeline like and how many people worked on it?
1: My guess would be we probably for Aperol had about eight weeks and we probably had a team of about six people working on it. You know, we had Lucas leading the design and and Lara designing a lot as well for that and then we had Lynn at the time, maybe three or four main designers and then probably about the same amount of animators.
0: I'd just like to take a few steps back. Starting off at the initial stages, what did the Royals come to you with?
1: Yeah, they came to us with the kernel of an idea. They wanted the orange to go around the courts in some way and and find its way to a glass of Aperol spritz and for it to feel like a European summer. We went back to them with three different story ideas, ways to tell that story, and they essentially kind of shook them all in a a jar and came up with one that that took the best bits from each idea, a bit of a Frankenstein of, of all those ideas, which, to be honest, was better than any of them on their own. Did
0: the Royals have any advertisements that they had used before that they wanted you to work with or refer to?
1: No, no, we didn't. We had the logo, obviously, to work with, and a big part of the process was designing the product, so the the bottle and and the glass of Aperol Sprit. The design language we had come up with was, was very flat, and the first few passes of the product didn't really fly with the client, and so we had to introduce some gradients to make it look a little bit closer to a real glass of liquid.
0: We talked earlier about the technical challenges. How did you present the unusual
1: animations to the client? We built a model in cinema that we projected the the work onto so that we could show them how it might look in the space, because it's really important to, to give not just us an idea of how it might look, but also the client. And did you do any testing at the arena? No, we weren't able to because they put the screens together at the last minute. They have a team there that we would send the files to and they would give it their not of approval just based off their knowledge of doing it, you know, in prior years. And there was the opportunity to look at it and the Royals, who have an office down in Melbourne, went along to that and just checked it on the screens before the event kicked off.
0: What were the comp sizes like?
1: The the comp sizes were insane. Like they were something like 700 pixels high by 20,000 wide and so on your screen it was just this little thin strip and so each screen at the arena was broken up into four pieces and they I believe had templates that were used to export all of that.
0: What do you think was the biggest design challenge?
1: Yeah I reckon it was working to the three different screens and making it feel like it was made for the space because Each screen had a different uh, sized uh, composition, and so we had to make it somewhat modular without it feeling modular. We had to make it so that if there was a hole in the, the Rod Laver arena for the players to walk through, then when we put that onto the Margaret arena, that wouldn't be a hole and that would be filled in. And so that exact kind of square of the doorway where the orange would roll on the top of would become something like a building or a hedge or something, so that in the Margaret arena it rolled along the top of a building and in the Rod Lavera arena it rolled along the top of a doorway. And there was a ton of these holes (laughs) in the screens in all of the arenas, so it was just a matter of working through those issues earlier on.
0: Okay, so let's move on to inspiration. Could you tell us where you look for inspiration?
1: You know, we're so lucky at Buck to have so many talented people that you really don't need to look too far. So I've always looked inside our walls for inspiration.
0: So what's Buck Sydney trying to achieve at the moment?
1: You know, moving forward, we'd just really love to continue to work with more local clients. So by local, I guess I mean Australia and New Zealand on good creative stuff.
0: Is there any styles that Buck Sydney would like to work
1: on in the near future? And
0: is there any new technologies that you'd like to work with?
1: Mm, good question. One thing that we did a lot in the States was stop motion work and we haven't really done that yet in the Sydney studio and I think that's something that I really enjoy doing and I know there's interest inside our walls. Like Josh is super keen to get into that so I think that'll be definitely something that we get into. You know, I know there's a lot of VR and AR stuff out there and maybe we'll get into that in the future. And for me personally, I just think I just want to get better at my role and have that culture and the right vibe in the studio and make it a really great place to work.
0: Okay, I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks once again for coming in and sharing your experience with us.
1: No worries, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you could come find us on Facebook and while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a like. You can find Garris O'Brien at buck.tv. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.